Please stand as I read God's Word, verses 18 to 20. I'm reading from Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 22. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, said Jesus, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. We are so lucky to hear the word of God. Amen. Well, good morning. Hope you all had a wonderful Christmas and uh, were able to spend some time with family and enjoy that. I feel like I'm about 10 pounds heavier since the last time you saw me. All the family visits and all the, the cheese. Um, but uh, first of all, Gary, I think the first New Year's resolution you need to make is just, just cut the great pop. Just great pop. Oh, my goodness. But I want to welcome you all here and glad that you're able to join us this morning. If you are visiting uh, as part of your kind of your Christmas tour, glad that you're able to join us this morning. And, and uh, my name is Ryan and I'm one of the pastors here. So as, as Pastor Gary and I were spending some time talking about what does, what, what kind of what should this message look like or what should we talk about this morning, um, we spent some time just kind of thinking through what, would it, I think it would be beneficial and fruitful for us to spend some time just talking about kind of what would 2019 look like as a church. And, and I thought it would be appropriate for us just to, to, to read this passage because I think that, first of all, it's the start of Jesus' ministry uh, as, as he comes out of the desert fasting and, and, and then, he, uh, and then he, he begins to invite these people, these, these four men, to follow him. And, and it's not only the start of Jesus' ministry, but it really becomes the start of the ministry for, for these four men as well in, in many different ways. And so I did a really quick search, though, online as I was preparing for this message. What are, who are the most followed people on social media today? And so Facebook, Twitter, Instagram are kind of the, the big three. And, and so, I, so on Facebook and Instagram, the top three most followed people are Cristiano, Cristiano Ronaldo, Portuguese soccer player, Selena Gomez, and Ariana Grande. Go humanity. <laughs> and on Twitter, it's pop stars Katy Perry, Canadian Justin Bieber, and former President Barack Obama. The question is, who are you following? We all have certain standards that we use to discern who is worthy of followership, don't we? For myself, it'd be, you know, I, I mock humanity, but mine would be Marvel movies, fantasy football, fishing. Yet as we read this passage from Matthew, I can't help but wonder what standard were these two, two sets of brothers using to discern whether they should say yes to following Jesus or not? 
where seemingly these men dropped everything, leaving behind their families and their work and all of their security to say yes to Jesus' invitation to follow him. And even in their failures, even in their mistakes, even in their age, even in their shortcomings in sin, just like us, Jesus invites us and these, these four men to follow him. This call, though, that we read from Matthew chapter 4 isn't, the, isn't a normal invitation. You see, rabbis didn't invite others to follow them. That was the job of the students. That was the job of the pupils to, 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 to initiate this. Their job was to show that they were capable and qualified to follow the teachings of the, of the rabbis, that they were a worthy student. Yet we see in this passage, Jesus again acting, kind of starting and showing us that this isn't the only time he begins to model for us this countercultural approach to his leadership style. And so Jesus extends this invitation to follow him. Now when a student followed a rabbi though, he wasn't just following to learn about him or to learn his teachings. He was following to walk with him, to be present with him. Conceptually, this, this wasn't just like a teacher passing information on to his pupils like we might see in school today. But instead, the rabbi was intending to replicate himself through his followers. For Jesus, it was these four men, later to, become, later to grow into these twelve disciples. When Jesus makes the statement, follow me, there's a couple of unique things that are happening here when he uses that language, follow. The Greek word that he uses here. Uh, for, for follow is this word opiso, which means carrying on what's afterwards. So a couple of things that he's, that he's saying is, first of all, following can be a physical position. Like I might say to my kids when we're at Costco, follow me. I'm expecting them to walk behind me and go where I go. I don't want them to wander around. There was this expectation for them to go where Jesus went following his leading, not running ahead. Jesus is also inviting these brothers to walk in the way of Jesus, not just walk with him or walk in following him, but also to walk in his way. Humility, obedience, peace, love. All these characteristics and more that, that define Jesus' ministry. Choosing Jesus' way of living over theirs choosing his priorities over their own, saying, I will let you lead me. Jesus was also challenging these men into a followership that meant Jesus was intending not just to teach them, but replicating himself in them so that after Jesus, after Jesus was done, his kingdom ministry, it would carry on into the future. You see, followership in the eyes of Jesus, in the eyes of the kingdom, is about multiplication. Multiplying the character and fruit of Jesus in our lives, in our lives, but also in others. Jesus' invitation of inviting followers, inviting these four brothers, was to replicate himself in the broken, replicating himself in the lost, replicating himself in the ashamed and in the imperfect, and in the process changing the world. In 1922, a revolutionary form of cinematography was released. 
It would become such an innovation that, that filmmakers today are still trying to refine it, still trying to perfect it, still trying to, trying to capture the fullness of what it could be. It was released, I think I said, in 1922. The first movie using this cinematic technique was called Power of Love. It flopped. But it was later renamed Forbidden Lover when it was re-released. It sounds really inappropriate, especially today, let alone in 1922. This revolutionary cinematography was known as stereoscopic effect, or what we know today as 3D. 1922. Now, there's an elaborate science behind the creation of three-dimensional movies, but ultimately what we need to know is that when filmmakers are producing 3D movies, they are attempting to recreate the dimensions of height and width and depth. They do that by trying to mimic human vision. You see, when we look with our two eyes, our brain fuses together one image. This is known as stereoscopic vision. Now, there's probably more science. I'm not that guy. <laughs> but they use this, when they make 3D movies, they use a stereoscopic camera. So they have a camera with two lenses. They're offset by a small distance, much like our eyes would be. And it creates this perspective similar to what we would experience in reality. So much like 3D, when we have different perspectives layered together, this, it creates a fuller image of what, a, a natural, what we normally see in TV and movies. It begins to create a fuller picture of what, of what it could, of what it, what it once was. And just like 3D has multiple layers, I think discipleship does too. Being a follower of Jesus does too. You see, three-dimensional disciples also allows us to experience a fuller experience of knowing and following Jesus. Instead of left and right contrasting perspective, Jesus calls us, I think, to three dimensions of discipleship. The first layer is a vertical relationship between us and God. An internal relationship where we allow others to speak into our lives for personal growth. The third is a horizontal relationship that we have with others as we begin to share the message and truth of Jesus Christ. And it's in these three relationships, in these three dimensions, that provide us with a fuller experience of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The vertical relationship is this idea of walking with God, being present with Jesus. Jesus talks about this idea of being present with him in John 15, where I think he paints this beautiful imagery of, of, of what, it, what it looks like to be, a, to be a follower or be present with Jesus as, he, as, he, as it relates to the vine and branches. John 15, verse 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I think within this verse we get a glimpse into kingdom priorities where Jesus tells us that without him we can do nothing. Now does that mean that without him we become incapable of functioning, that we just lay limp and we just can't do anything? No, I don't think so. I mean, there's certainly successful people around the world throughout history who, have, who haven't followed Jesus and we would say, yeah, they've been fairly successful. I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at here. I think he's saying without him, we won't know what is important in the eyes of God because we won't know him. 
And even if we did know what those kingdom priorities were, even if we were able to say, yes, that is what the kingdom priorities are, if we don't know who Jesus is, we will lack the wisdom, the discipline, the discernment, the strength to effectively know how to live those out. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. Apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. So why can't we do anything apart from Jesus? Well, in the New Testament, we see this, this described as, as, the, as, in the Greek, the word is sarx, S-A-R-X, sarx. It's this word, it means sinful nature or flesh. So if you see this, this word in the New Testament, it, it means your sinful nature. Sarx is the, is the language that's used here. It's, it's, the, it's a part of us that is constantly fighting against the desire to be present with God. It's that longing that we have to choose ourselves choose our priorities, choose my desires instead of choosing God's desires and priorities. Paul talks about this tension that he feels that I can relate to. I think many of us can. Romans 7, it's kind of a tongue twister. I do, not I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature, Sarks. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in me that does it. Got that? <laughs> Essentially, Jesus is calling us to abide with him to, is a response to the sinful nature inside of us, fighting against that. By being present with Jesus, we choose to, de to deny our nature and say yes to him. Identifying what it means to live with him and live for him. Go back to John 15, verses 14 and 15. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. I love this. Because our relationship title changes now from disciples, students, servants, to, to friends. Part of the stipulation, though, when it comes to being friends with Jesus is obedience. You are my friends if you do what I command. Obey me. Submit to me. Obedience is both a momentary decision and a way of life where we obey even when our sarks, our sinful nature, our flesh, challenges us to a different way of living than what the Holy Spirit might be drawing into us. We choose to follow the way of Jesus. We choose to love when we don't want to. We choose peace when we're angry. We choose forgiveness when we are hurt. We choose gratitude when we want more. We choose the Spirit of the living God to be alive and active in us. We choose to acknowledge that Jesus is present with us now today in everything that we do. The mundane and meaningless can become sacred and significant. These are moments that have been given to us as opportunities to fellowship with Jesus, to be present to abide. Abiding can be as simple as a, as a one-minute prayer 
or reading a passage of Scripture or a chapter from the Bible to, to allow God to speak to you through His living Word. Abiding in Christ is, is simply just acknowledging that Jesus is with you in whatever you are doing. And it can be, and it can be done wherever you are. It's reminding ourselves that we are intentionally spending time with Jesus by trying to listen to Him. Turning our ear toward heaven. One of the things I love to do as I, as I try to abide with, with Jesus is I like to go on walks with Him. Where I'll just have a conversation with Him and, and I'll share my feelings, share my thoughts, share my stresses and distractions. But as I do that, what I, what, I, what I intend to do is invite Jesus into those things. And even if I don't get a resolution to any of those, those things that are happening in my life, what it does is it begins to align myself with, with, with His kingdom priorities. Sometimes I'll bring my Bible along and I'll read through Psalms or passages that encourage my soul. And it's in this abiding with Jesus that we can begin to recalibrate our hearts back onto Jesus and His purpose and plan for our lives. Where we, where we are choosing to let His Spirit reproduce Himself through us in the way we live our lives and experiencing Him wherever we go. Being in a vertical relationship with God means that we are dwelling with Him, living with Him. Earlier this year, I while we were still living in Lethbridge, uh, I met with a missions director of this, of this organization. He, I, he and I had never met before, and he wanted to get together with me and just talk about missions and that sort of thing. And so, yeah, sure. So we met at a coffee shop in Lethbridge at 9.30 in the morning, and, and we were chatting for a while, and then his alarm on his phone went off at 10.10. I thought it was kind of weird, and, but he turned it off, and he, and, and he told me a reminder to, to pray. And he prays for God's will to be done in himself and in this world. And he just comes and he, and he begins to align himself with Jesus. And, and then he said, do you want to pray together? And so he and I, even though we had, we'd only had 40 minutes in our, in our relationship, and, and, and we began to pray for each other. We prayed for our families. We prayed for our ministries. We prayed for our cities that we each lived in. And I thought, this is a man who understands what it means to abide with Christ. Someone who stops whatever he is doing and is intentionally choosing Jesus in his day. And he modeled for me a truth that I often need to remind myself of abide with me. But he also challenged me to live it out in my own life. He didn't you know, verbally say, now I want you to go do this. That wasn't, that wasn't the point of that exercise. The point was for him just to, to seek after Jesus. And it inspired me. I thought, man, this is a good quality to have. This is a good discipline. I think this is why relationships with others are so critical because we can see things in others that point us towards a deeper knowing and following towards Jesus. Which brings us to the second layer of discipleship, the inward focus. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2 says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Now I could probably tell at some point, but that's not today. Today, right now, I just want to unpack each of the words just to help us to kind of understand what Paul is saying here in this passage. Much like a, the idea of abiding with Christ is intended to, be, intended to be present with Jesus, at the heart of this passage is a call for us to be present with other people, to meet the relational needs of other people in our lives. And as I, I have to be honest here, as I was preparing this message, this is the one that I struggled with the most. 
I struggled with this point so much. What am I going to say? Because I felt like a hypocrite. Because I have to be honest, I don't feel like I do this really well in my life. I know what's important, but I feel like it's an area in my life that I need to grow in. I understand that, th- that humility is about thinking about yourself less as opposed to thinking less of yourself. But as I read this passage and thought about humility and what it looks like in my life, I, I think it's so difficult because if there's one person that I love to talk about, it's me. If there's one person that I think about more than any other person, I wish I could say it was my kids, but it's me. If there's one person that benefits most from my actions, yeah, you guessed it, it's me. I'm inherently a self-centered person. And as I abide in Christ, and because of this, I've noticed that I fall short more and more. And that as I, as I spend time with Jesus, I, I, I become aware that I need His grace in my life because, boy, I'm a, I'm a selfish mess. Humility is not something that I practice voluntarily. I like being recognized for my efforts. And I certainly like putting myself ahead of others too. The challenge, of course, with being humble is that, that it causes us to rely on other people, hoping that they won't take advantage of us. Humility, I think, in many ways, is giving power to other people in your life, trusting that they will, that they will steward that gently, steward that gracefully, and not wound you in, in the midst of your humility. If you've, ever under, if you've ever held a baby, you understand the type of gentleness that I think Paul is talking about in this, pas- in this passage. It's this idea of controlled power or strength. This Christmas, the other day, I got to hold my seven-month-old niece. So tiny, so small. Truth is, though, in my strength, I have the power to crush her. She's completely vulnerable. She doesn't know it but she's learning that the people in her life are people that she can trust. Humility is choosing to be that baby. Hoping and trusting that someone handles you as gently as a parent holds a newborn. And Paul reminds us to be gentle with our words. Using them to speak truth, but making sure that they're rooted in love and grace. When we understand that our faith journey has more steps backwards than we care to admit, it helps us to choose patience when we journey with other people. Now the Greek word here that Paul uses in this passage for patience is this this word makrothumia. It simply means long-tempered. You know, when we hear the phrase, oh, that person has a short fuse, it usually means that they get angry really quickly. The idea behind makrothumia is that it takes a long time before someone becomes angry. They are long-tempered, meaning they don't get angry for a long time, but that it takes a long time to choose to become angry, if at all. Lastly, forbearing with others is this idea of holding someone up. Perhaps not physically, but emotionally, spiritually. I think, Horace, you prayed that prayer really well, describing some of the people in our church who do that. Journeying with someone who might need your presence in their life just to know they aren't alone. About 15 years ago, one of my, one of my friends, uh, he, he and I were spending time together, and, and uh, he was telling me that 
uh, well, it, it, over the course of a summertime, he, his dad was, uh, became sick, and, uh, and they took him to the hospital, and the hospital was unable to diagnose what he, was, what he had, what his illness was. And over two months, his health continued to decline. And they still they remained undiagnosed until he died. Two months. He had no idea. Went to the hospital, never came out. And they never did find out what he had. But I remember him telling me, a friend of mine, telling me that one of the most significant moments of healing that he experienced occurred while he was at his younger sister's hockey game. And he was just sitting in the, on the bench, or sitting on the, in the stands. And while he's watching his sister play, one of his good friends came and, and, and sat down behind him. He had no idea that he was going to show up, and he just came and sat down beside him. He offered no spiritual platitudes like, God's got a plan for this. He didn't say a word. He just sat down beside him, and he was just present. And in that silence, in that presence, spoke volumes to him. It revealed to him that Jesus still cares about him, that Jesus sent this friend just to be present with him, to be the manifestation of Jesus' presence in, in, his, in, in, his, in my friend's life. This person who held up his friend in this season of grief in a simple expression of silence and presence, that's forbearance. The last aspect of 3D discipleship to balance out the vertical relationship, our inward relationship, is our horizontal relationship. When Jesus invites these brothers to follow him, he says, I will make you fishers of men. He's inviting them to that horizontal relationship. I will make you fishers of men. Now, I, I know a little bit about fishing. And I know that generally in our context in North America, fishing is typically an individual activity. You can go with your friends, but Typically, you're the one making the cast. You're the one reeling it in. It's generally a fairly individual experience. However, in the first century context, fishing required everyone on the boat. They couldn't wait for the right fish just to jump into the boat. That'd be nice. Everyone threw the net overboard. Didn't matter what they caught, but whatever they caught, they were all bringing it in together. When they were ready to retrieve the fish, it wasn't just one person and everyone else just observed. It was everyone using all of their might, all of their energy to bring in the catch. It was everyone. It requires community for that to happen. If you are 10, 30, 90. It requires everyone to be involved in fishing for men. We do it together. Fishing in this context, first century context, was very much a communal effort. And I think this third layer, looking horizontal, is, is important to be done in community because if you're like me, I'll forget. I'll get distracted. It won't be a priority. But in community, when we're all fishing together, when we all follow in together, allowing Jesus to multiply himself in us and through us through simple acts of love, we can make a difference. We change lives. But a month ago, uh, I, was, 
I was, uh, it was before, just be, it was Sunday morning, and it was just before church was about to start, and I was out shoveling the walk, and, and, uh, and, and as I was shoveling, Frank Isler came and talked to me. Frank doesn't know I'm going to share this story, so sorry about that, Frank. But Frank came to me and said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm shoveling the walk. And he said, go inside. And I said, why? He said, well, you just get an over a lung infection. And, and I, well, yeah, I am. So I went inside and, 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 I, and, I, and that was a, that was a, a meaningful interac- interaction for me. Now, did Frank change the world with that simple act of kindness towards me? No, not at all. But what it did was it communicated to me something. It said, hey, I'm thinking about you. It was a nice gesture of kindness that just said, hey, I noticed you and I care about you. I know it needs to get done, so I'm not going to wait for someone else to take the initiative. I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to do it. This isn't isn't in my notes, but it's just a side thought that I just had. In the first century, um, the Christians, uh, the the, the Greek word for, for kindness is krestos. And, and there's been some historians that have, that have been able to, that think that, that sometimes, that, um, sorry, my words are a little convoluted because this is just a thought that's coming through my mind now. Um, the word crestos, that historians think that people often call Christians Christians because their expression of kindness was so evident that they were beginning to identify Christians as people of kindness. Christians instead of Christians. Anyway, back on the, back on the rails here. That simple act of love, simple act of kindness, multiplies Christ's love through our actions. And I think as we begin to do that, it points others towards the possibility that, that, that Christ is at work, that Christ has a purpose and plan for them. And as we begin to, to show these acts of love to others, we point them to salvation and life transformation in Christ. When we look outwards, it gives expression to our faith. It transitions our faith from simply a learner about Jesus to a follower of Jesus to a friend of Jesus. Jesus invites the disciples into a purpose beyond themselves that's rooted in him. So the question that I started this morning with, who are you following? Because Jesus is inviting you to follow him. And as you do that, I hope you might begin to say yes to this three, this three dimensions of discipleship in 2019. The vertical relationship with Jesus. The inward relationship with people as, as you experience relationships with others, as they speak truth into your life. And horizontal relationships as you show Christ to others. Recognizing that there is a world that isn't necessarily opposed to Christ but are skeptical of Christians who claim to follow Jesus, but don't reflect it in their lives. As we walk with Jesus, as we walk with others, as we live out our faith horizontally, I believe that if we could do that, we will see an explosion of life change within this church because we are saying yes to the invitation to follow Jesus. Before we wrap up here, I want to give... Maybe one application for each of the different dimensions of discipleship. So the vertical relationship. Maybe you can do what this this missions guy did. Set our phones for a certain time in the middle of the day where we just take 60 seconds just to abide with Christ, to be still, 
just to recalibrate our heart, mind, souls on Jesus. Or we can spend that, that time just committing to reading a chapter a day or memorizing a small passage of Scripture. Or taking a mundane task and inviting Jesus into it. Maybe when you stand in line at the grocery store, just pray for the people that are waiting in line with you, ahead of you. Instead of being frustrated that they have so many groceries in front of you, you pray for them. The inward relationships. Maybe the first step to humility is vulnerability. Invite feedback from a trusted individual who you feel safe enough to be vulnerable with. Trusting that they will speak gently, truthfully, lovingly, but also will be patient enough with you in your shortcomings that they'll journey with you. So here's three questions you could ask if you want to be vulnerable with somebody. What is one thing that you think I should do more of in my life? What is one thing that you think I should stop doing in my life? What is one thing that you think I should change in my life? So one thing you want me to do more of, stop doing, and change. And then the horizontal relationship. 2019. Only got a day and a half left. Pick one day. One day for the 2019. And maintain it for the year to intentionally show kindness just to one person in that day. And I'd love to hear stories at the end of 2019, whenever our last service is on the 20, in December 2019, where people had meaningful interactions with others where people's lives were encouraged with simple acts of love like shoveling someone's walk. Once you've done that, once you've decided what day that is, once you've decided if, if you're going to do that, tell someone else and hold each other accountable. Because as I said earlier, we get distracted, life happens. Journey with one another, bear with one another, inspire each other to a deeper followership of Jesus as you say yes to him. So as we look forward into 2019, my prayer, our prayer, is that we would all enter, enter, enter into a deeper expression of what it means to follow Jesus. To discover more about Jesus through his word and through intentional times of listening and seeking after him together. To invite space for people to speak into our lives. To share the love of Jesus in intentional ways this coming year. My hope is that this year we can look back and say, yeah, I'm a friend with Jesus. And that we'll be able to look around this space and say, yeah, there's a bunch of other new friends here as well. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for 2018. There has been, it's been a good year. We recognize it's been challenging at times for others. And God, that promise of difficulty doesn't, uh, that promise that, that life is going to be easy isn't, isn't, doesn't exist. And, and so we thank you for your presence in times that are challenging, times that are good. But God, more than anything else, we pray that, that over the, as we look back in 2018 that we would see growth in ourselves that we would have seen how you have been at work in us, that how you have changed us, Jesus. 
We thank you for the ways that you teach us. We thank you for your grace that you don't give up on us. That you offer us hope. That you continue to change us, Jesus, to be more like you. Amen.